Bless Lord. Well, we are finally uh, picking up our series on constants and variables again. I know we've been somewhat delayed. Uh, we started this in September, and uh, through my absences and the Lord redirecting some services, I haven't been able to get back to it till today. But I want to, for those of you that were away or were not here, or just started coming recently, just relay a little bit of a platform if I can. The basic concept, and Maddie's going to help me out a little bit here with some PowerPoints. I'm not sure exactly which ones we'll use, but the basic concept behind this series of lessons is that we, we looked at the mathematical uh, system. Give me the next one, Maddie, please. When, when maths has both numbers and letters in it, and most of you are here for the first lesson, but just as a little refresher, we, we considered that in maths these two ideas are often called constants and variables. Or in other words, something that we know the value of, like the number one or the number two that is consistent, that does not change. And I know there are different permutations when you get into high-end maths, but I'm ignorant of all of that, so this is what we're going with. But when we look at, at letters in mathematics, we, we're not always aware of what they represent. The, the problem, the, the equation that they're in is what determines their value. And so they are a variable. In other words, they can change. They do not remain the same. And at least in the basic level, uh, you can probably get rid of that, Matty. That's probably all we need for the moment. But at least at a basic level, the more constants that we have in an equation, the better equipped, equipped rather, we are to handle the variables. When you were at school, and some of you are still at school, and you were faced with these challenges, you had to use what you knew to try to work out what you don't know. You take the, the things we understand the value of, and we use that to try to establish the value of the things we don't understand. And this principle applies in our spiritual lives, that there are things that should be constant in our walk with God that we need to appreciate and understand the value of, and in the more of those things that we have established in our lives, then the better equipped we are to deal with the variables that life so often throws at us. There are things that happen in our lives that we did not see coming. There are experiences that we have, situations we go through that we were not warned about. But the good thing is there is nothing that has ever happened in this life or in this world that has ever taken God by surprise. Nowhere do we find the Lord saying, didn't see that coming. That, that caught me out of, my, out of my sight. I didn't see that coming. God knows everything. And so when we have variables in our lives and situations that we did not see coming, we can be confident that He has given us the things that we need to face the variables, to face the curveball, to use a sporting analogy, to face... That, that unpredictable circumstance, when, particularly in life when something that we think is stable becomes unstable. That can really rock us. You know, somebody that you know has always been a particular kind of person and, and then something happens and they change dramatically. And we say, I didn't see that coming. But the Lord has given us what we need. And so to summarize a little bit of the first two lessons, and if you weren't here, they are on the podcast or they are available to be on the, uh, the computer if you prefer a CD, if that is your preferred form of media. 
But the things we've, we've considered so far is that God is the only true constant. He is the only thing that really does not change. He is consistent. He is established. His word is forever settled in heaven. It has commandments and principles that apply to us today. Right here in 2015, this book that men for centuries have tried to discredit still holds its own. It still defends itself. It still applies to us right here. And now there are not many things in this life that are just as applicable in 2015 as they were 100 years ago. There's a lot of things, you know, you read old newspapers or old articles or magazines or books and sometimes we laugh and we think, oh, look how they lived back there. Look at the, the absence of technology and the way they did certain things. They become dated very quickly. But the thing is, because the author of this book is eternal, it does not date. It does not go off. It does not have a shelf life. It is established forever. It is constant. And so when we use... We need to use these commandments and principles to establish constants in our lives that will help us to handle the challenges that life sends our way. You can choose to take things out of the Word of God and set them as constants in your life. You know, we, those are things that we should do before we face the difficult situation. It's hard to make those decisions on the run. It's hard to decide what your principles are and what your values are and what your measuring points are on the run. We need to establish those things so that when we face that circumstance, they're already there. Amen. You know, it's, it's, we, we've used the example of guardrails on, on, a, on a mountain highway. Very hard to put a guardrail in as the car is sliding off the road. If the guardrail is not already there, it's too late. It's much the same with our relationship with God. And we established, I think, in our second lesson that the constants that we need in our lives come from three different areas or three different sources. First of all, the commandments that are in the Word of God. When the Word of God says, thou shalt or thou shalt not, it's done. It's there. We need to take that and go, okay, the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, I'm not going to steal. The Bible tells us not to lie, I'm not going to lie. Those are things that they're simple examples because they're easy. We establish those things. The second area these constants come from is from the instruction from the man of God. Because there are principles in the Word of God that we have to apply to present situations. Not everything in 2015 was there when the Apostle Paul was penning the New Testament epistles. Not everything you and I face today was there when Jesus walked the earth. And so there are things we have to go to the Word of the Lord and we have to say, how does that principle apply in my present? And that's why God has given us spiritual leadership. We get constants that come from our spiritual leadership. When I was a young man, if my pastor said, I don't want you to do this, I put that on the same shelf as the commandments from the Word of God. That's just how I approached it. And you might not like that particular philosophy, but I can promise you it did me good. It did me good. Amen. And the third area that we get our constants from is personal convictions that come to us by the Holy Ghost. There are some things that are personal to us and our relationship with God that we hold ourselves to a higher standard than perhaps others do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes it's something that's connected to our past life. 
You may have been involved in a particular activity that was sinful in your past life that you want nothing to do with again. And so you may set yourself a higher bar of separation from that. Somebody that struggles with alcohol, that may have been an alcoholic, they may, they may have a very strong feeling about going anywhere where alcohol is served. I mean, you can go to places now where it's like, is it a restaurant? Is it a bar? Is it a restaurant? You know, and it gets, some places it gets blurry. And some people have very strong feelings about that. And you, the thing is, we don't necessarily impose those things on everybody. But if you feel that that's what the Lord is pleased with in your life, you need to hold to that. I know a lady who used to cook with alcohol. And before I go any further, let me say, I don't think that's a problem. If you're cooking with alcohol and the alcohol's evaporated when you cook, it, it's not an issue. But that's a personal conviction. Now, this lady used to cook with alcohol, but she had a teenage son who got a bit wayward. And the cooking alcohol started disappearing into a different area. And so she made a personal decision never to have it in the house again. Now, she didn't run around trying to enforce that on everybody else, but that was her personal conviction. And we need, you know, there are reasons. It's very important. Convictions are important because there are reasons that the Spirit of God impresses things upon you that He does not impress upon others. Because you have different battles to other people. You have areas where you are weak, where others are strong, and you have strengths where others are weak. And to just to, to, it is foolish to have the approach, well, everybody else thinks it's all right. If you know that it's a weakness in your own life, you need to be wise enough to go, I'm going to set that bar a little bit higher for myself. That's not controlling your life, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. Amen. Bless the Lord. And so we established that there were two main purposes for putting constants in our lives. Two main reasons that we do that. The first one is to assist in strengthening our walk with God. We make decisions. We put things in our lives that we believe will help us to walk with God, to be victorious and to live a powerful life in the Holy Ghost. And the second one is things that we establish to protect our walk with God. So it's kind of like a two-edged sword or a two-fold approach or you want to use a sporting analogy again, it's like an offense and a defense. One protects, the other one strengthens. And that's why we put these things in our lives. And you know, if you don't have both, if you don't have things that are defensive, it will hurt your offense. Now, good sports teams have defense and offense. Because if you're weak in one area, the other area will suffer as well. And it's much the same in our relationship with God. That's why there are things, there are commitments and consecrations we make that draw us nearer to the Lord. And then there are other commitments and consecrations we make that separate us from the world. Because separating ourselves from the world makes it easier to draw nearer to the Lord. Separation on its own won't make you close to God. You can remove everything every practice, every habit, every activity from your life until all you believe in is fresh air and bottled water. But that won't make, you, won't make you spiritual. If you then take that and draw near to the Lord, that will cause you to become spiritual and godly and more Christ-like. And the same thing works in reverse. If I am trying to draw near to the Lord and, and become more Christ-like, but I'm not separating myself from the world, those things are dragging me. They're pulling me back. You've got to have both. 
There's a lot of Christendom nowadays that says that separation doesn't matter. But I cannot walk in the Spirit if I'm serving the flesh. I cannot please God if I'm also pleasing my own carnal nature at the same time. There's a tug of war that goes on there that will simply never end. And so that's the two main reasons we have. And so with that, that's just a bit of a summary of the first two lessons. I could spend another hour going over them again, but I'm going to be merciful. Considering we've dedicated this young lady this morning, I'm going to spend some time teaching about constants that we should have in our families. Constants, pillars, reference points, whatever you want to call them, that we need to have in our families. The family, or as sometimes we call it the family unit, is not some random idea that mankind came up with through trial and error over thousands of years. If we believe the, the evolutionists that all these things took time and developed over however many millions and bajillions of years, then we would have to also accept that the family basically was just something that was, you know, they tried a few models along the way and finally they came up with something that worked. But the reality is that the family is designed by God. God himself designed the family to be the environment where the closest of human relationships are formed, found, and developed. And from there, all other relationships begin. We can talk about the relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and children, and also between children and siblings. It's not a coincidence, and I've taught and preached on this many times and will continue to do so, but it is not a coincidence that the moral corruption and compromise that our society has has happened in parallel with the breakdown and the devaluing of the family unit. The two go hand in hand. Society is falling apart morally, so are families. That's not a coincidence. And so as Christians, we have to recognize that God cares about our families. He cares about our families. He cares... I would say he cares more. He wants. He cares and wants you to care more about your natural family than your spiritual family. Not that one is caring, one isn't caring, but your natural family. There's there's a blood relationship there. That old expression that says the blood is thicker than water. Somebody said, but syrup's thicker than blood, so we should like pancakes more than. But anyway, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter six. That wasn't in my notes, as you could probably tell. I'm going to read this passage again. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy sons and thy sons' sons, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. That's important. Verse 7 says, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, 
and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. So in this passage, there's several concepts we need to pay attention to. Firstly, these things were not negotiable in the sight of God. They came from God. They were commandments. They were commandments that Moses was required to command the people with. God is the centerpiece. He is the focal point of everything. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God. We are built around that foundation. And with God as our centerpiece, we are commanded to love him. In Deuteronomy, it says, with our heart, soul, and might. In the New Testament, in Mark 12, I think it says heart, soul, mind, and strength. It adds an extra dimension to that in the New Testament. These principles and commandments that are in this passage are designed to be intergenerational. He said it's for your son and your son's sons. It's meant to be passed on. These things will only be achieved. It says they have to be, in in verse 6, it says, they shall be in thine heart. Love is, even though there's a lot of commanding going on here, which seems quite blunt, love is still what makes it all function. And these things will only be achieved when we love them, when we live them, when we demonstrate them, and we teach them. And they're the four focal points that I want us to keep in the back of our mind this morning. Loving it, living it, demonstrating it, and teaching it. Amen. In our families, and we've gone over this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this portion, but in in our families, we need to have constants of spiritual discipline. There needs to be prayer. There needs to be the Word of God. We need to bring our families to the house of God. Those things should be constants. And uh, we, we're in a society where those things have become variables when they should still be constants. And I saw an article recently, I think, Sister Linda, you may have posted it about the importance of, of church attendance. It was, it was a good article. And you see, because when we, what happens with spiritual disciplines, particularly when we talk about church attendance, when we try to teach our children that, but we don't demonstrate it, we're actually probably doing more harm than good. It's like people that sit there smoking trying to tell their children don't smoke. And people do that because they realize the error of their ways, but as they sit there through the haze telling their children not to do what they are doing, the child is getting a mixed message. They're hearing one thing and seeing another. And so if we teach our children, you ought to be in church but then we get up Sunday morning and take the motorbike riding instead, they're hearing something but seeing another. If we want it to be effective, it has to be loved, lived, demonstrated, and taught. We have to bring them to the house of the Lord, and we have to show them that it is a priority for us. You see it a lot in society where there's a lot of parents that, that are telling their children to do things and doing the opposite. I worked for a man once who, when he would show me how to make something in the kitchen and mess it up, he would say, do as I say, not as I do. He said, I don't want you to do it. He was trying to show me how to do it right, but he got it wrong. And there's a lot of people that that's their approach to parenting. They try to teach their children to do the things that, sorry, try to teach their children to do things, but they're not actually doing them themselves. That's not an effective model. Proverbs 22 and verse 6 says this, and many people know this verse. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go, 
and when he is old, he will not depart from it. This verse is often misunderstood. This verse is a general principle. It's not a guarantee that if you raise your children in church, that when they were adults, they will never stop serving the Lord. You know why I can say that with confidence? Because anything that people understand to be waterproof and guaranteed that overrides the will of an individual is questionable. Because no matter how well you raise your children, they still have their own will. They will still make their own choice. We can do everything we can to influence that will. But ultimately, we're all responsible to make that decision ourselves. Whenever you hear somebody say, if I will do this, if I will do fast six out of seven days a week, or I'll pray for five hours a day, then this has to happen in somebody's life. Their understanding is not correct. Now, if you will fast and pray for situations, you can have an incredible impact on that situation. And God can move mightily in that individual, but ultimately they still have to choose. They have to choose. We all have to choose. It's a principle in Proverbs, and the principle is that if we put constants in our lives, those things become a part of our children's thinking, their psychology, their makeup. Now, they may make decisions later on that are contrary to them, but you'll find they are still in them. Let me give you a little example from our own home, and I try not to use our own family too much as an example. But when my children, who are now 18 and 15, talk about, you know, we talk about, you know, when you're older and you have kids, when they talk about having kids, the way they speak about raising their children makes me sound like a gentle little soul. When I have kids, man, I'm telling you, they're going to... Now, why is that? Because along the way, they've been disciplined. And as much as they would terribly deny its benefit, they recognize its value. No child, in my experience, ever comes to their parents and says, thank you for giving me a smack. I really needed that. I was having a rough day, but you've straightened me up. If your children do that, may God bless you. But when they're older, that principle has been established. And hopefully they will... And that's the principle of Proverbs here. There are things we put into our children that certainly have an impact. But ultimately they make their choices. I, I know families where children have been raised in church, been taught all the same things, and then yet as adults, one serves God and one doesn't. The human will is always in the mix. But we do everything that we can to give them a godly framework. Amen. Bless the Lord. Because, you see, the problem, the problem with, here's what happens, and this is where it can get destructive. If you read that verse and you believe that if I raise my children in the house of the Lord, they must serve God and then they don't, you take the blame. Because any parent that looks at themselves hard enough and long enough will find mistakes. And you go, well, okay, because I wasn't a perfect parent, that's why my children aren't in church. Well, if that was the principle, there would be no kids in any church anywhere. Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, did not have perfect parents. Mary and Joseph were just like you and I. Jesus, you know, it's a little bit hard for us to think about, but God manifest in the flesh as a young man probably saw his parents have a disagreement. You know, maybe Joseph was supposed to stop at the shop on the way home, pick something up, and he came home with the wrong thing. Not that that ever happens to anybody. And he got home and Mary said, 
I told you to get the low-fat milk. And he said, it's milk, what's the problem? He'd had a long day, he didn't want to go past the shop. And Jesus thought, I'm going to my room. He grew up in a normal house, in a normal family. Our will still plays a very significant part. Amen. And these are some more constants that I believe that we should place in our families, remembering that living them and demonstrating them is part of the key. We need to teach our kids to love God. We need to teach our children to love the Lord. We need to teach our children to love their family, to love their natural family. Your family is very important. The older you get, family is one of those things that when you're a kid, family is great. You become an adolescent, family is really lame. You head into adulthood, you start to have your own. The older you get, generally, the more you recognize the, the, the priceless nature of your family. The kids in the world we live in, kids grow up and move across the country, move across the world, and the opportunity to get together. You know, as my dad, my mum and dad will be 69, I think, this coming January. And as they're getting on in years, they will take every opportunity they can to get our family together. My sister and I and our spouses, and well, my sister's got one kid, we got two. But they, because they, the older they get, you know, what you, when you've got it, you don't value it so much. And when I was a teenager, my mum couldn't wait for me to move out. And I can understand. But then I moved out, and she was heartbroken that I wasn't there anymore. But that's the way it is. We don't always appreciate what it is we've got when we have it. We need to teach our children to love our families. I believe very strongly we need to teach our kids to love their church. There's something powerful when we love our church. When you love the church family, that becomes tangible amongst us. You can feel that amongst us, and that has an impact on people that come in. And I'll take it another step. I believe we should teach our kids to love their pastor. Not because I'm the pastor. You won't all be here for the rest of your lives. I may not be the pastor here in who knows how long. But there is something, when our kids grow up with that affection and respect for the man of God, it can keep their souls. And we need to take care of that. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and 11, he said, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child. He said, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. What's interesting to me about that verse is that 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter. In the King James, the word charity is used, and it comes from a very strong Greek word for love. It's sandwiched in between 12 and 14, which are about the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul speaks about his maturing. The context of that statement is in his understanding of the significance of love. And so as we, as we mature, as, you know, there's a lot of things we do as Christians because we see other people do it, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's a good thing. There's things we do because somebody said, we're Christians, this is what we do. There's nothing wrong with that. But as we grow in God, it needs to come from the love of God and our love for God. I I do this, I live this way, I go to this church, I don't, you know, because I love God. Paul, Paul understood that maturity was when we do things out of love. It wasn't that we don't care about all the things we've been taught, but rather that all of those things increase in value because love is the foundation for those things. You know, when we're young Christians, some, you know, some of these young men that have not long been serving the Lord that have a desire to walk with God, and I can basically say, Brother Moses, I want you to sell your car and give me the money. Now, I'm, I'm hoping you wouldn't go that far. That's a bad example. But, but there's a desire to please God and to do whatever they're required to do. 
which is a good thing. But as these young men and all of us grow in the Lord, those things need to come out of love, not just because, oh, the pastor said so, or the youth leader said so, or my Sunday school teacher said. They need to come because I love God. I do these things because I love Him and I want to please Him. And Paul, Paul was talking about, in a chapter that was all about the value of genuine love, he spoke about how his understanding had changed when he grew. And I don't think that's position there out of coincidence. Because of the love of God, we need to model the gospel in our homes, in our families. And what do I mean by that? We know the gospel is the good news. Brother Steve spoke to us about that recently, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's through that message that we get the idea that through his suffering we are able to be redeemed, to be brought back. And the process of redemption includes repentance and forgiveness And in our families, we need to be willing to demonstrate repentance and forgiveness with one another. Now families, there are some families for some reason, sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's because of situations. There are some families that when there are problems, there are divisions that come that they take to their graves. That's not godly. That is not how God would have us to be. We need in our families, look, if we want our husbands, our wives, our kids, our brothers, our sisters to be able to extend the gospel beyond our own home and beyond our own church, we have to model those principles in our homes. We have to take ownership of our own errors. If you make a mistake, if you do and say the wrong thing, don't brush it off and justify it. You know, it's one of the, we mentioned this in a couple of conversations recently, but one of the very first traits if not the very first trait we see in fallen human nature is to blame somebody else. The first thing Adam and Eve did when they got busted was blame somebody else. Of all the sins that would follow through humanity, that's where it started, not my fault. You gave her to me. He effectively said, God, I didn't ask for her. I went to sleep one night, I woke up in the morning, I was married. That's your problem. But that's one of the basic foundations of human, fallen sinful human nature is to blame somebody else, is to justify, or I, yeah, I did that, but it's not my fault because if you've got kids, though, I ought to get an amen for that. If you've got a spouse, you should probably say nothing. Bless the Lord. But we need to model the gospel in our homes. We need to be willing to repent or to apologize. You know, that even works with your kids. Sometimes as parents, you know, we don't always do the right thing, say the right thing, handle the situation. There's nothing wrong with going to your children and saying, I'm sorry. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I, I was upset, you know, when you did this or said that, that, that annoyed me, but how I handled that, whatever it might be. You should be always be willing to apologize. You should always, because you're demonstrating something. If we want them to be able to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, we have to be able to demonstrate. I mean, remember, love it, live it, demonstrate it, teach it. If we, if we want our kids to practice it, we have to demonstrate those things. Between husbands and wives, kids need to see their parents being willing to apologize to each other. They also, whoever is receiving the apology needs to be willing to forgive. It has, it's a two-way street. That's, that's the gospel. Even our kids, if our kids fight, we, need to, we should encourage them to learn to be able to go and say sorry. If they upset somebody, 
they need to be willing to try and, and restore that, that, that particular situation. That's the gospel been demonstrated in our homes. That's redemption. The principles of repentance and forgiveness being demonstrated between it. Those are things that we should establish as constants in our homes. Now, here's, here's one you may like to start with until I break it down. But parents, parents should teach their children how to fight. Went really quiet then. I'm not talking about enrolling in martial arts or, or you know, or, you know, taking your son out the back and teaching him how to box. It's not what I'm talking about. But disagreements are a part of any relationship. Some people don't like the word fight. Some people prefer periods of intense discussion. But they are a part of any relationship. But we need to do everything we can, and, and probably none of us are great at this. If you are, then that's wonderful. But we need to try to do our best to fight fair. When you do have a disagreement, when you do have a, a difference of opinion and, and things can get a bit strong, there need to be some boundaries. There need to be some things that we won't do. Because we're, our children, you know, if, 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 I think we should do our best not to fight in front of our kids, but unless you live in a really, really big house or your children can't hear very well, they're going to be aware. Kids are not silly. Kids know when things are a little bit with mum and dad. But it, when they see that kind of interaction, they also need to see how that is overcome. Because otherwise they'll repeat. It's the principle of monkey see, monkey do. They will take that into their own relationships. And they'll say, that's how it worked in my house. Mum threw the fry pan. You know, dad went to the pub for three days. You know, and they will repeat the things they see. And so when we do have those periods, and they will come, we need to have some boundaries. Because when you have a difference of opinion, emotion, just somebody releases the valve and it just floods into that situation. And when emotion floods in, whoo, temperature just starts climbing. And we start, because the other person's not listening, which really means they're not agreeing, not listening and not agreeing are actually not the same thing. They come from two different Greek words. But because they will not acknowledge that you are right, we get emotional and we start to get personal. And we do things, you know, marriage counselors, all the things they teach you in marriage seminars are easy in a marriage seminar because everybody's sitting in an air-conditioned church, you're holding hands, you're pretending you've got a perfect marriage. You're learning all these wonderful lessons, and then you go home. The marriage counselor's not there anymore. The pastor's not there anymore. He's at home fighting with his own wife. But, and the emotions come up again. And we say things like, you always do that. Or you never do that. And we go for absolutes. And it gets personal and then we start getting nasty. Here, here's the principle about a dispute or a fight, whatever you want to call it. The more damage that you do in a confrontation, the harder it is to repair it. There's nothing wrong with having a difference of opinion. If you and your spouse never have a difference of opinion, you are the most boring people on the face of this earth. Because you are two different human beings. But when you do have a difference of opinion, there are some weapons that need to stay on the rack. 
because when you start to hurt and to destroy, you're not fighting fair anymore. It gets nasty. And, you know, what may have started over Mary and Joseph having the wrong milk, you know, they may get over the milk quickly, but what he said about her mother or what she said about the fact that he's the one that needs the low-fat milk (laughs) may not heal quite so quickly. And so the issue that the fight started with may be resolved. But afterwards they're thinking, he's in the mirror going, I don't need low-fat milk, I'm fine. And she's thinking, how dare he say that about my mother? Because it has a way of, of spiraling. It has a way of spiraling. I'm not going to read all of this, but th- this is a list of some things that, that somebody said that are rules for fighting fair. It was actually Brother Bernard. Men, men particularly, although it works both ways, should never resort to threatening behavior. You never, your wife or your children should never feel... You know, there's nothing wrong with your children having a little healthy fear. There's a difference between that and them feeling unsafe. There's nothing wrong with children being concerned that dad's about to give them some corrective attention to their posterior. But particularly between a husband and a wife, there should never be a situation where people feel threatened. On the flip side, there should never be situations where people don't talk to each other for days. You've been in a house where the mother and the father are not speaking for days and the kids almost have to act like ambassadors. What should I do? Go and ask your father. What should I do? Go and ask your mother. I mean, it's like you've got eight-year-olds being peacekeepers. It should not happen. It should not happen. We need to be mature enough as people of God to say, no, that's not the kind of people we're going to be. Amen. Don't, you know, one of the things that this happens with married couples, when you are having a difference of opinion... Don't bring up all the other differences of opinions you've had since you've been married. History is not a good weapon in the present. This reminds me of that time in 1972. No, no. If it's dealt with, leave it alone. Don't dig it up again. Old things that are buried smell if you dig them up. Leave it alone. Move on. Do not look to humiliate other people. Don't pick on things that, that... about a person's appearance or their character, they can't change. Well, if you weren't so short, this wouldn't be a... I mean, what do you want them to grow? There are some things you can't change. You can't change some stuff. Don't pick on things. I mean, they were that height when you married them. Unless they were really young, they're not going to get any taller. It's just kind of how it is. Learn to communicate about how we how a particular action has made you feel rather than just focusing on the action. Look, there are disagreements, but if you can keep them, if you can have some rules for fighting fair, then when when the, 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 the situation passes, there's a lot less carnage to have to put back together. You can smash something into so many little pieces that it will never be put back together properly. And so we have to put these things... Together and Let's have a look at Ephesians chapter 4. My goodness, what happened the last half hour? Try and wrap this up soon. You know something, when people come to our homes, they shouldn't see perfect people because they'll think you're really strange. But they should see some of these constants in our families. And really... 
I would suggest that the longer that you're married, the better you should be at dealing with this stuff. I'm not saying that's an automatic because there are variables in life that come along that we have to deal with. Ephesians 4 and verse 26 says, Be angry, be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. So again, it acknowledges that there is going to be anger, but not all anger is sinful. But what you do with anger is whether or not you cross that line. You know, we often use this verse when we teach on marriage. You know, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Husbands and wives, you know, don't go to bed angry, stay up and fight all night. But, but we, we use that when we're teaching about marriage, and I think that's good, but the passage is not even talking about marriage. That's the next chapter in chapter 5. The passage is, is just talking about Christians as a rule. It's talking about Christians as a rule. And I was praying about this just recently, and I feel like the Lord showed me that, that while the practice of, of not going to bed angry is a good thing, there's a little more to this principle than just the setting of the sun at the end of the day. You see, unresolved anger is the birthplace of bitterness and malice. And we, we touched on this recently, but in 1 John 2 and 10 and 11, it says, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so even though I do believe that in, we're talking about a 24-hour period, we should not let the sun go down on our wrath. At the same time, there's a principle here that the longer that I allow anger to reside in my spirit, the more the sun sets on my spiritual life, the more that light diminishes and begins to fade and the darkness becomes strong. That's why the Lord John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that when we hate our brother, we're in darkness. The light's gone out. The sun has set. It's gone down because we haven't dealt with it quickly. We want to continue to walk in the light. That's why, see, in Revelation, there's a reason all these things tie together in the Scripture. In Revelation 21 and 23, it says that the city, talking about heaven, had no need of the sun neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So the principle is, yes, you should try to deal with anger before you go to sleep at night. But more than that, if you allow it to, to settle in your spirit and you don't address with it, the light is going to fade and the sun will set and you'll find yourself thinking that you're in light, but you're actually in darkness. Amen. And we need to choose. I believe we're talking about constants and variables, at least partly. We need to choose to establish the constant in our families of demonstrating the gospel, of being willing to love, to live it, to demonstrate it, to teach it, to, to be willing to repent, to be willing to apologize, to be willing to extend forgiveness. Listen, I'm going to come to a close on one more, one, more, one more point that's important in our families. Parents, we need to feed our children well. I'm not talking about broccoli or Brussels sprouts. If you feed your children Brussels sprouts, you should repent. I, I do not believe they were there before the curse. Don't believe there are any Brussels sprouts in the Garden of Eden. They came afterwards. 
I haven't got scripture for that, but I just feel like the Lord showed me that. So, But the things that we feed into the hearts and minds of our children should always be adjusted according to their levels of maturity. What do I mean by that? There are things, the things that we discuss in the presence of our children should always be age appropriate. I'm not talking about movie ratings or that kind of age appropriateness, but I'm talking about other things that kids don't need to know. If you've got problems in your family, whether it's your immediate family or your extended, maybe brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, parents, grandparents, whatever, when your kids are small, they don't need to know about that stuff. Their, their understanding is simple. Their love is pure. They don't need to be burdened with chaos and the conflict that adults seem to be able to manufacture so easily. Kids don't need to hear that stuff. That principle goes a step further. It includes your spiritual family. Children do not need to hear that you have a problem with your brother and sister in the Lord. Kids do not need to hear that. They do not need to hear that there's a problem between other people at church. You shouldn't be sitting at home and having lunch and saying, well, did you see the way Brother Moses spoke to Brother Chichi? Man, those guys have got something they need to sort out. You know, and, and you know, your children don't, because they're going to come to church and they're going to be trying to see what mum and dad were talking about. Kids do not need that. We live in a world where so many things are being put in children's hearts and minds already that are not meant for children. And as Christians, we do everything we can to protect and preserve their childishness. They're supposed to be childish. They're children. Bless the Lord. What happens if you do that is that you poison their well. If you pour that sort of stuff into their minds and their hearts and their spirits, if you sit there talking about why you're unhappy with the leadership of the church or the youth leader or the men's leader or any leader or the pastor, you are poisoning your children's well. What comes out of them is tainted by the things that you've poured into them. And you are responsible for that as parents. You need to make a constant in your lives. You know, look, I'm the pastor. My wife and I talk about stuff that happens in the church. There are times we'll be driving home, we'll be chatting about something, and it's usually not anything too severe, but I'll just say, not now. Because there's, I mean, not as much now. My children are getting older, but when they were little, not now. Kids, kids have this wonderful ability. As parents, we call it selective hearing. When you want the rubbish taken out, they're as deaf as a post. You want them to clean up their room? I didn't hear you. But if you want to give them something, I bought you a new game or I bought you some ice cream, they can hear you from two postcodes away. It's one of those things that medical science cannot explain, but every parent knows it's true. And your children will always hear the negative things, the things you don't want them to hear. When Matthew was small... Sorry, Maddie. If we watched some kind of movie, a kid's movie, there might be one line in that hour and a half movie we thought, oh, that's not really appropriate for children. Which line do you think he remembered from the movie and quoted incessantly because he knew he wasn't supposed to remember that line? Kids have a way of picking up the things they shouldn't be listening to. And so as parents, we have to do everything we can not to poison their wells. You know, as children mature, and particularly they get towards adolescence, 
they're going to understand that life is not simple, that there are complexities of human relationships. They will notice issues that they didn't notice when they were a child. They'll notice there's tension between adults at church or, or there's something going on. And so you shouldn't pretend and go, like, oh, I know, the world is beautiful. They're getting old enough to understand. And as they get old enough to understand, when you talk to them about things, always do so from that gospel perspective of being redemptive, wanting to be restorative, to, to try and see how this, this situation could have a better ending, to always look for something that is the right way to look at this. And never do so with, yeah, you're absolutely right, Sister Rosemary does have a really serious problem, and I'm hoping Brother Simon throws her out before too long. You should, you should never come from that approach. As your children say, well, why does this happen? And, and why did that happen? And why did Brother So-and-so say this? You need to always do everything that you can to preserve the reputation of the people and to look for a way that how would God have us to handle Look for an opportunity to be redemptive. Make those things constant. Look, your kids are not stupid. They know when there's things going on. So particularly once they get to be of a certain age. But we need the way we approach that. You know, we want them to love the church. Not because it's perfect or flawless, but because Jesus loves it. And he wants us to love it like he does. And that's where we have to come from. We have to look for a way in all those situations to glorify God, to bring out the best we can. If it's a situation, there are some situations, it's really hard to find anything positive to say. You ever been in that situation? It's like everything is bad and it's like, well, um... You're trying to find something good to say, but it's just not there. Sometimes you just got to say, let's just pray for it. Let's be careful to keep our own attitude right. I was talking to somebody recently, and this is what I said. I said, when people do questionable things, if we don't watch our own spirit, we'll find ourselves swimming in the same muck, even though we may not have generated the situation. And so we must keep a right spirit. I had a friend in the state that rang me for some, she was troubled rang me for some advice. She, had a, a, she and her children were good friends with another family in the church. And this other family had a problem with the pastor. There was a problem in that relationship. Things were a little bit sour. And this family were venting their frustration, anger, whatever you want to call it, in front of their kids. And these kids were going to school with my friend's kids and talking about the pastor. And she rang me and said, I'm really worried about this. And I said, you need to go to your friends and you need to tell them. You know, if you've got a problem, that's okay. You need to do the best you can with that. But please don't poison your children because they're passing it on to mine. And kids talk about things and before long it's, it spreads. We need to do what we can to contain it and approach it the way the Lord would have us to approach it. Amen. God wants us to have the gospel, as it were, in our families. We need to make up our minds that this is the kind, you know, you've got to be intentional about some stuff. You don't become that kind of family by accident. Oh, you've got a really good family. How did that happen? Beats me. <laughs> Just lucky, I guess. Just, you know, good breeding. I don't know. <laughs> you've got to be intentional about it. You've got to decide these things are in our home and these things do not change. You ask my kids if I hear them talking about anybody, what do I do? I'll be on them. What's your attitude? We have to keep our spirits right. Amen. Let's stand together this morning.